We are going to take a look at some of the labor action that is happening in B.C. As you likely know, Coast Mountain Bus Company drivers, bus drivers, are not wearing their uniforms. That's part of their initial phase of job action. And maintenance crews are not working overtime, which has already led to some service disruptions, particularly on the C-Bus. But we have been warned that more disruptions will be happening as the job action continues. So we've also heard 911 call dispatchers are uh, not happy that talks there have reached an impasse. Legal aid staff also uh, having a bit of labor issues at the moment. So what do we make of all of the job action and uh, the general unhappiness when it comes to these sectors? Let's bring in Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, let's start with transit workers because that's uh, the the one dispute at this point, I think, that's actually having an impact on the public. Uh, not a huge impact at this point. Uh, longer waits for the C-bus, uh, drivers not wearing uniforms, uh, but everybody is being warned that that could escalate. So what are your thoughts on what we're seeing there? Well, just speaking personally, first off, I hope it doesn't escalate much further than this because I lived in Ottawa at a time of a terrible uh, bus strike uh, during the middle of their winter, which gets down to minus 35 degrees. And we had a small child at the time and people were literally just plowing through snow on sidewalks with their baby carriages with groceries strapped into them trying to get home, trying to get to work, you name it. And it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And the mayor in that case uh, really didn't know what he was doing. And it was provided a big hardship for a lot of people trying to get to work and trying to get their daily uh, errands run. So I hope it doesn't get to that stage here in Vancouver. And then when you look at it from a taxpayer and ratepayer perspective, you got to start wondering, what are we paying these high rates for? If management at the TransLink level can't get their act together so that we avoid actual job action, that we avoid the need for these bus drivers and their view to actually start walking off the job and canceling bus trips, what, what value are we getting for our money? We should remind people that the head of TransLink makes more money as a transit boss than the transit bosses in both Montreal and Toronto. And he's currently uh, has a stage set, if they approve it, to make more money than the boss of New York City's transit system. So if we've got such an awesome transit system and our management is so spectacular, why do we have disgruntled uh, bus drivers threatening to walk off the job? And certainly that came up this past week. There were two issues. Well, there are a lot of issues that came up, but the, the one in, in relation to that was the executive salaries and what some might call the hypocrisy of the approval that TransLink executives, not that they gave themselves raises, although in some cases they did, but they upped the window for those salaries for what they could get. And and in some cases, about an 18% increase or even higher in some cases. And obviously nobody in the working level is getting an 18% increase, uh, but also made those comparisons, as you just did, comparing the the, the similar jobs here in BC to even Washington State, uh, mm-hmm. New York City, other places. And that question being raised, why are they so different? It is a huge difference. And so 
we try to be careful to not go after, you know, a bus driver or a frontline nurse. You know, those union members are our friends and neighbors, and they're usually working very hard. What we often try to take a good look at is often union bosses, Uh, who can overstep their reach, they can get disconnected from their rank and file, Uh, they may not know what their members truly want, and it may be very political. And then on the other side of the bargaining table, we take a hard look at the management system. And so in this case, we're taking a hard look at the TransLink management system and how much money they're already taking in. And what was really perplexing is that now apparently uh, what's being asked for would be about the same money equivalent as their big phase two expansion that TransLink wants to do. Remember when they jacked up the TransLink tax by another cent and a half? Now we've got 18.5 cents per liter for our gasoline. We already have a big uh, TransLink tax hike on our parking all through Metro Vancouver. Well, apparently now um, this miraculously surprising demand coming from the labor side of this organization would eat up that entire amount that they've put onto the backs of taxpayers and ratepayers. So where is the new money going to come from for phase two? They want to do it all over again. That's the rumbling that they're making now, that they want to jack up the TransLink tax on gasoline again and the TransLink tax on parking again. It's, it's really too much. And these guys really needed to sort their priorities out before this all happened so that people weren't inconvenienced trying to get to work. And really, we need to ask ourselves if these bureaucrats and brass holders at TransLink deserve to make these kinds of figures. And you mentioned as well, nobody's going after the workers in this case. And I think everybody can agree, uh, being a bus driver, you it's its a stressful job. Mm-hmm. It's an important job. But we've seen numerous cases of abuse drivers take, which nobody should have to take while they're on the job or at any time for that matter. Nope. But we also know that after a couple of years working, you make about $68,000 a year as a bus driver. The offer on the table is, uh, we're told, about 9.6% over four years and 12% or about 12% for, I believe, the maintenance workers. Uh, we believe the union's asking for about 10% to somewhere around there. The sticking points come when it comes to breaks and working conditions. Uh, do you think, do, do, do bus drivers get the, the sympathy of the public or the support of the public when that seems like a pretty good offer? It is a pretty good offer, especially when you start imagining what maybe your own wages would be like or the, your listeners, if they're listening to what they're thinking about what their own wage increases would be like. And if you start looking across government sector employees, it's pretty comparable to what's being offered. And I think it can often lead to disgruntlement uh, if you start thinking, well, this is all about breaks, right? Or this is all about overtime or being asked nicely, things like that, to put it in you know, simple terms. And I still don't come down on the, on the back on the side of the bus drivers in that case. I would still look back to management and say, this is a people problem. If you've got drivers who are this upset um, or reunion rank and file this upset over breaks or, you know, being able to take a breather, this is, this is a management problem. You guys should have worked this out at the very beginning so we, we don't have job action. Because usually it wouldn't, uh, if you're missing your break here and there or you find you're not being heard, Usually as a worker, your first instinct isn't to say, oh, to hell with this, I'm going off the job, or I'm going to take job action. But if you're consistently being ignored, consistently being uh, not heard, it would get your dander up. And so I think that's still on the management side of things. They should be able to smooth this out. Uh, if they're that, not that far apart on wages, they should be able to smooth the ruffled feathers on things like breaks.
Exactly. And it's one of those issues, too, where negotiations were going on. They broke off. Nobody knows what happened in that room Mm -hmm. except for the people who were in there. We're being told by the union that drivers simply don't get breaks, that that it's worked in right now. It's about 45 minutes that you're supposed to get. But they're saying they simply, because of congestion and because of crowded buses and the routes, the busyness of it, they don't. Uh, The company then turns around and says, no, you get the 45 minute now. The proposal we put on the table upset to 60 minutes. Everything's great. So it's difficult, I think, unless you're right in the thick of it to really get whose whose version is closer to the truth. Well, maybe both of them are true. And I'm not trying to be cute by saying that, but maybe the way they're applying those breaks needs to be fixed. Who knows? Maybe they actually physically need somebody on a central platform, for example, to step on and relieve that driver for that 60 minutes. So he or she literally gets off the bus and goes and does something, you know, goes to the bathroom, uh, eats, does all those wonderful things that you do during your break to, to reconnect and then get back on. I think what it sounds like is that they just don't have the people exchange going on in order to get those breaks in. Whereas if you're, like you said, stuck in traffic, stuck in congestion, you don't want to miss your next pickup, you've got people waiting on you, they're trying to get to work, trying to get their appointments, you can't take time to stop and park your bus. So maybe it's actually a management issue and not a time issue that's cropping up here. So whether or not they give them an extra 15 minutes, maybe that's just an extra 15 minutes they still don't get to take because of the way the conditions are set up. Maybe they need to switch around the way breaks are actually um, imposed. Uh, which I'm sure uh, if the two sides come back and continue talking, that will be uh, one of the conversations. Uh, just before I let you go, and you mentioned this as well, we've and, and certainly people have been calling in and talking mm-hmm. about management salaries. Do you think it needs to change? Because it's not just TransLink. We've seen this at the Metro Vancouver Board. We've seen this at various councils. And it's often the final par- part of an addendum to an agenda, and it's whisked through these mm-hmm. approvals of of huge increases in salary. What needs to change there as far as what's allowed when it comes to increased salary uh, for elected officials and management? We need to introduce some form of a salary cap. Uh, How we exactly do that, I would have to work out. But what has to come with this is vigilance, absolute vigilance. Uh, You mentioned the Metro Vancouver Board very quickly. The reason we heard about that on a Friday afternoon in the middle of a two-week spring break was because of a whistleblower. Somebody phoned us from the Metro Vancouver board and said, you know, this just happened. They voted themselves a huge pay hike, a retirement bonus, and they're all walking out of here with about $15,000 each because they're not seeking re-election. We called the media. Everybody went crazy. They all phoned, and then they all backed down. They reversed themselves completely. It was Ginger Rogers just on lightning speed. They all backed down. So we need to have that kind of vigilance, and we need rate payers who have their time. Maybe you're retired. Maybe you're working part-time. Go to these meetings. Read these agendas. And let us know. Let the media know. Call the radio stations. Call the newspapers and tell them if you see things like this. And the next part of that is we need full transparency. Every single minute of all of these meetings needs to be publicly broadcast, saved online, and we need all the transcripts so that we can easily search them and hold these folks to account because we can't be having these bureaucrats making these kinds of uh, payment decisions on their own, and it's all our money. So we need full accountability and vigilance. All right. We will leave it there. Chris, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
there's a reason that people are coming to our shop and shops like it that are not fully within the legal system yet. And it's because our cannabis is higher quality, lower prices, and better selection. Uh, if the day comes when the legal system can be better than our shop, I'd be more than happy to either go into it or just to shut down and let that take over. That is the voice of Dana Larson. He is a marijuana advocate. He runs, has run several dispensaries in Vancouver. And he was speaking outside of the shop on Thurlow Street. And you likely saw this in the news. It was raided last Wednesday. And joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Sarah Lehman, a criminal defense lawyer. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you've written about this as well. So what was your reaction when you found out that police had moved in, that there had been a raid on this dispensary on Thurlow? I think that everyone was quite shocked. And uh, there were some videos that were circulating on social media as well, showing patients having a very negative and surprised reaction to what was happening. It was completely unannounced. And I don't think that anybody really could anticipate that, that was going to happen to that particular shop. And we've seen the footage, uh, like you said, there was video as well of officers inside the dispensary uh, that while that raid was taking place, uh, some very uh, upset customers outside. Uh, So what do you say to, I suppose, the argument being that this is a dispensary that's not in the legal realm? Uh, Dana Larson just said that too, that uh, they're trying to, that they would like to be compliant and, and go that route. What would you say then to, I guess, the argument being that the reason for the raid was this is not a legal dispensary? Yeah, I mean, the law absolutely is on the province's side in terms of shutting down dispensaries that are not yet under the legal framework. Now, my understanding is that this particular shop is going through all the steps that are required at this time in order to bring itself under the legal scheme, and that they are complying with all city bylaws as well while they're doing that. It also has been in existence for at least a decade, and they've been able to operate without any issue over the last 10 years. So, I mean, just because we can, should we be enforcing these types of laws? Um, I mean, that's a big question here, because, again, we have not just, you know, clients or consumers, but patients who are standing outside who need access to their medicine and then they're being denied. And I guess uh, without uh, being a part of this or without um, seeing how this actually works, and because this dispensary has been there for so long, it would have a regular clientele and patients who always go to that dispensary. Uh, Is it not possible then for patients to go to some of the legalized dispensaries instead? Yes, I mean, of course, people can go other places to get um, cannabis. But that being said, when it comes to medical cannabis patients, Those people are people who need a very specific product. They might need a particular strength of cannabis at, you know, a particular THC uh, dosage. Also, there's people there who have built up a lot of goodwill with the people who work in a particular dispensary. They trust them um, and they require a particular price point. So, you know, lots of people who are cannabis patients are perhaps on disability or on pensions. They have a fixed income and they can't afford what's available at the government shops. And, and you mentioned this and you're writing about this too. Is it Does it uh, scream a little bit of hypocrisy when we have a city where these dispensaries were allowed, they were given business licenses for so long before marijuana was legalized and now the, this action is being taken against them? Yes, I think it absolutely does. And I think that's one of the you know really disturbing aspects of this is that these... Um, shops were allowed to operate for so long and in fact the government was profiting off of them and now you know 
under this legal framework, suddenly we're seeing that they are being shut down and raided. And so, so where do you think things have broken down? Should it be that shops like this one that have been operating for 10 years, it, should it be that it should be easier for that dispensary to get the legal paperwork done to actually be licensed and continue on? Yeah, I think so. I think we need to have a more streamlined process in terms of granting the licenses that are required. Um, also, the process is extremely uh, expensive. You know, so lots of dispensaries that were in existence before had to either shut down or be shut down because they couldn't afford to go through the process. So I think that we need to see um, a legalized licensing scheme that is uh, quicker and also more accessible for shops. Uh, and is it, do you think, because it's, well, I guess on the one hand, it's it's a new business model because it's just been legalized or legalized a year ago. But at, on the other hand, these are shops, again, that have been operating for many years. Is it because it's a new type of business that's legal that do you think there's more red tape? Well, there has been so much red tape everywhere uh, when it came, comes to cannabis legalization. So it's not surprising to see that this process is extremely burdensome um, as well. And I think that there's going to be a lot of areas uh, with cannabis legalization where we need to see some relaxing of the red tape over the years. Is there a legal argument to be made or something that could even be taken to court in arguing somebody that is dependent on this medicine and has been going to this dispensary in shutting it down, uh, their rights are being violated in some way? Uh, Well, that is an argument that was put before the court on a number of different occasions. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't really um, gain very much ground. So again, you know, at this time, the law is on the province's side in terms of enforcing the regulations around licensing. But again, just because you can do something doesn't really mean that you should do it. Right. Uh, and because the product the, themselves has have been called into question as well with people saying that, and, and I'm guessing it's the same with some of the customers of this dispensary saying, yes, we can go to the legal, uh, the licensed shops, but, uh, and you mentioned this as well, price is an issue. And also the, the, the actual product, if you're used to some type of medicine, then if you can't get that exact medicine, my guess is it's not going to, to, to do the same thing. It might not have the same effect. That's right. And so we're depriving people of their medicine. I mean, these are patients who are suffering from very serious conditions, um, chronic pain management, you know, cancer patients, people who need something that's very specific in order to allow them to cope. Um, and they're being denied that. So I think that's the disturbing element of this year. And what about the argument, though, from the legalized shops saying, wait a minute, we paid the money to go through this. We went through all of, we jumped through all of the hoops to be legalized. It's not fair that the illegal dispensaries are allowed to continue. Well, I mean, I completely can agree with that. But that being said, of course, the uh, dispensaries like the one that was shut down last week are ones that are going through the process. They are paying the fees, they are doing the paperwork, and they're in the process of bringing themselves into the legal regime. It's just that it's taking a little bit longer. So again, you know, I don't think that the rights of patients should fall behind uh, the timeliness of the government granting these licenses. Uh, you mentioned too, and I think Daniel Larson talked about this uh, when it was happening, that uh, the raid was done without warning. Uh, do you find that heavy-handed in that, granted, 
it's it's police going in on a on an illegal business. But again, it's a business that's been there for ten years. It's not it's not like we're talking about a room full of weapons and a bunch of gangs that have descended on the place. We're talking about, for the most part, people buying medicinal marijuana. Do you think it's heavy handed, and that if police are going to be continuing this, they should give them the heads up? I do. I mean, it really is. Um, and again, those videos from people who were just, you know, going to the dispensary that day in order to buy their medicine are truly disturbing um, because we have them outside, you know, expressing their need for their medication. Uh, and while, you know, inside we have police who are taking it out back and, and taking it off site. So um, it is very troubling to see that type of tactic being used. All right. Well, we will leave it there, but certainly uh, we'll talk about this again uh, for sure. Sarah Lehman, thank you so much for your time. Always good to chat with you. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, as you probably know, the labor dispute involving bus drivers, maintenance workers, members of Unifor is continuing the dispute with Coast Mountain Bus Company. Yesterday, we saw some CBUS sailings cancelled, some longer delays on the CBUS as their job action continues. We talked with the union yesterday, and this morning uh, we are joined by Michael McDaniel, who is the president of Coast Mountain Bus Company. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jill. Uh, we saw those CBUS cancellations yesterday. Have we seen any other service disruptions so far because of the job action? Uh, so far on our bus system, we have not seen any any significant delays of any kind. We did, obviously, as you noted, on uh, on the CBUS. Uh, we will have more of those today, about 16 sailings that will be cancelled today. Uh, but we are getting out to the public. We're telling them to make alternate arrangements so to work around that. And we didn't have any significant delays at uh, at CBUS yesterday, which was good. Uh, and you mentioned earlier as well, with the 1,300 buses on the roads and with 150 spares, uh, any idea on what's happening with that or if we can predict when there might be service disruptions on bus routes? Well, I think, uh, you know, what I noted the other day is that uh, as time goes on, uh, we will we will have service disruptions because those spares will uh, decrease and, and we will have service disruptions. So, I mean, really the best way to stop any sort of disruptions uh, to our commuters is to get the union back to the table uh, to bargain a reasonable deal. And has there been any any movement there? Because last time we chatted, I think you had said that the negotiator had reached out. Uh, Gavin McGarrigal said he hadn't heard from the company negotiator. Has there been any talk there, do you know of? Uh, there has been a small amount of talk to see uh, if each side is ready to get back to the table. We have been very vocal that we are. Um, but we do need the union to come back and, and bargain a, a reasonable deal. And, and as you note, uh, we've we've been very uh, transparent on what we have on the table today uh, because we do feel it is a fair and reasonable offer. This is in excess of what the rest of the public sector in British Columbia is getting. We feel good about doing that because it's the right thing to do. Uh, but we do have a fair and reasonable deal on the table. We need the union to come back and finish bargaining with us, but within that backdrop. And so, has, so there's, have there been discussions then between the negotiators about possibly getting back to the table? Uh, there's been small discussions, yes, uh, but to date uh, they have not uh, made their formal uh, request to us to come back to the table. Um, uh, but we do want to either get back with them uh, or bring in a third party for mediation. We have asked them uh, several times about that. Uh, they've declined to participate with us uh, in that. 
Uh, but we need to get them back to the table and uh, and continue and finish this bargaining so we can we can stop any disruptions to our commuters. Uh, it sounds like the two are pretty close when it comes to wage increases, be it around the 10% mark or 12%, depending on, on which which worker you're, you're talking about. One of the things the union brings up quite quite often is uh, the idea of a mechanic who works for Coast Mountain Bus makes less, or a maintenance worker at Coast Mountain Bus makes less than a maintenance worker, somebody doing the same job at SkyTrain. Why would there be that discrepancy? Well, I think one thing to note is that uh, one, despite the fact that they're under the TransLink umbrella, they are separate employers, and so they bargain separately. There's a separate union that represents those those maintenance workers. At the same time, um, we are in the middle of our bargaining, and we need to complete our bargaining so we can um, adjust the wages accordingly. We have a package on the table that does that quite significantly, actually, over and above the 2%. Uh, and when we get to the end of the bargaining, we will obviously finish our agreement. Uh, SkyTrain has to do that separately, uh, and they will do that uh, in, in, in due course as well. But keep in mind, we do have 12% on the table for those skilled uh, those skilled trades, and that is, again, faster than the rest of the public sector. We've acknowledged that we need to be more competitive for these uh, skilled trades in this market, and we have specifically put that on the table to adjust that. Uh, but I, but you still get that somebody, they, like you said, they're all working under the umbrella of TransLink, and it does seem strange that somebody doing the exact same job would get a different wage. Yeah, one thing to keep in mind, Jill, is that there's there's all different parts of the job between wages, benefits, uh, and working conditions. And so just as a quick example, um, our maintenance workers have what's called Sunday premium. Uh, the maintenance workers over at SkyTrain don't have a Sunday premium. And so it's hard to compare uh, apples to apples. But again, we are acknowledging that we do need to move our skilled trades faster than the rest of the public sector to make those adjustments to stay more competitive. Uh, we are doing exactly that in the package uh, that we have on the table, and we're not completed our bargaining yet. Right. Uh, you mentioned as well, because the working conditions have been a big sticking point in this dispute, bus drivers saying that uh, many times they don't have time to take a break. They don't have time to get it, uh, a sandwich. They don't have time to go to the bathroom. Uh, you said that uh, the latest offer then goes from f- about 45 minutes of break time that's worked into a seven and a half hour or longer shift to up to 60 minutes. But if the drivers don't actually have time to take those minutes, uh, how how is that put out there as a bonus or as a better deal when it doesn't matter how many minutes we say if they don't actually have time to take those breaks? Well, we schedule Jill on on average. And so there are times where we can't predict what's going to happen on the road. Those may be isolated circumstances. If they're not isolated circumstances, we change the schedule uh, about every four months. We change it five times a year. We have a Christmas schedule as well. And we note that. We look at that. We do a lot of analysis, and we will continue to change that. This is not a a static position at the time of bargaining. This is something that we've been working on for the months and years that preceded it, and we will continue to do that after we're finished bargaining. Uh, The union has said that they would like to, to see some kind of compensation for missed breaks or penalty. Is that something the company would be open to? Well, that's something that's come up at the table, uh, and I won't get into all of the specific discussions at the table, but I will say that we have to continue and finish those discussions, and um, we can't do that if the union doesn't come back to the table. But I think the important thing to note here is that the union's position right now, uh, the last position that they had, is about $608 million more than where we're sitting right now across 10 years. And when you look at that, um, 
you know, the union has mentioned in, in the public that maybe we should just slow down expansion. Um, that is the opposite of what we should do. Everybody has been saying overcrowding is the number one issue. It's putting pressure on the system. If we were to remove about a million hours of service expansion going forward for the next 10 years, that's the same amount as the $600 million difference. Overcrowding would be completely worse. So what we actually need to do is expand the system. We do need to pay our uh, our workers fairly, and we have a very fair and reasonable offer on the table. We have to balance the two. And we feel we have a balanced perspective that we have right now uh, to have a fair and reasonable deal on the table as well as expand the system into the future. That's that's what we're, we're trying to do. And where does the $608 million figure come from when, again, you look at the two sides and the wage percentages seem very similar? So where is that $608 million coming from? Well, Jill, although they look very similar, they're, they're not. Um, the categories are wages, benefits, and working conditions, three different categories. And in the wages category, the, the monetary difference across 10 years between the two positions right now is about $150 million uh, over those 10 years. Uh, benefits, it's just a little bit under that, about $125 million, And working conditions, it's about $325 million. All of that adds up to the $600 million difference based on the, uh, the packages that each have on the table right now. We do need to be fiscally responsible, uh, and we have to put a fair and reasonable deal so we can take care of our workers because we want to take care of our workers. But we have to balance the expansion of the system that's going to affect commuters in this region for the next 10 years. All right. So we only have 30 seconds left. Uh, your uh, message to transit users heading into the work week. Well, our message is uh, stay tuned to our, our, uh, our, all of our communication channels. Uh, we will do our best. We're not sure what the union is going to do with their job action. Um, but our message to the union is the best way to stop job action is to get back to the table and, and bargain a reasonable deal so we can, uh, we can get on with the expansion of the system. All right, uh, Mike, thank you so much. I know we will be talking again uh, this coming week, but thanks so much for making some time for us this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Well, we talk about housing a lot, uh, talking about how to build more, get more supply on the market, and finding space for housing. Well, this is a bit of a controversial idea, and uh, an article in the TIE takes a look at turning the golf courses in Vancouver, the city-owned courses, uh, getting rid of those and turning those into housing. As you can imagine, some of the first reactions is, wait a minute, this is green space, you can't touch it. But then when you look at the argument being made as to how this could actually make a dent when it comes to building housing, well, you might change your mind. Uh, Patrick Condon is one of the authors of the article. He is the James Taylor Chair in Landscape and Livable Environments at UBC's School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture, also the founding chair of the UBC Urban Design Program. Patrick, thanks so much for being with us again. Great to be here, Jill. You had to know that an idea like this would be a controversial one and get a lot of feedback. Yeah, it certainly got a lot of feedback and it was controversial. And happily, I've given up all hopes of uh, running for office in the future as a consequence. <laughs> so walk us through, because at the first take on, on seeing a headline that it says time for Vancouver to turn its golf courses into homes, uh, I think the first reaction from a lot of people, and it was, was, wait a minute, that's green space. The last thing we want to do is start paving over green space. But then it goes to uh, crunch a lot of the numbers and look at the land in question. So what do you think is the biggest argument in favor of doing this? The biggest argument in favor is that uh, we don't have a supply of housing 
problem. We have a we have a land price inflation problem, and adding density in the city, which many advocate and I, and I advocated for many years and still advocate under certain circumstances. But unfortunately, adding density has only increased the price of land. So the cost of the housing doesn't go down. So once one recognizes that land is probably the core of the problem, you start to search around, well, where's the land? And the golf courses are places where there are, where there's three square kilometers of land. And as the article mentions, uh, the, the, a, a potential strategy would be to save half of that land for a new fully accessible parks, nature parks, and the other half – uh, have three different cohorts of housing in there, one for the for uh, low-income families, the other for middle class, and the third at market rate. And it would be the market rate housing that would cross-subsidize the low-income family housing as well as the middle class housing in the form of co-ops, similar to South Falls Creek, that model. Uh, the basic idea is to extend the model of the South Falls Creek success story into other parts of the city to deal with the problem. And as the article makes clear, you could get uh, 20,000 tax-free units of affordable housing for people who live and work in the, in the city who are presently being priced out. So there's a very big upside that, that, uh, that goes along with the, what many people see as the downside of losing those golf courses in their current function. Could you not do that, though, by bringing in more density and and bringing in different types of housing for the wide areas of the city that are right now zoned for only single single family homes? Yeah, that's the core of the problem. The answer to that, I would I would simplify by saying no, because when you upzone, when the city upzones any parcel of land in the city, all that really happens is the cost of the land increases. It doesn't cheapen the cost of the housing. There's ways around that, which I've also recommended in, in other attempts at dealing with this problem by basically using development taxes to mitigate the cost of land increases and using those development uh, taxes to purchase affordable home units that are permanently affordable, again, in the model of the South Falls Creek uh, non-market housing. But just adding density, Jill, in answer to your question, doesn't create an advantage for the home purchaser. It creates a great advantage for the landowner. Right. So in this scenario, and, and, and how you just explained it, if, if there were to develop the golf courses, it would have to be done in a way, because if you just developed them, they, I mean, they are in great neighborhoods. So it would, it, would, it would lead to more very expensive housing unless it was zoned in a particular way. Yeah, unless you had this idea of cross subsidizing, you take the land, you take the city's resource, which is twenty billion dollars worth of land. You you use a certain amount of that land for market housing, so the land gets purchased at market prices. You use the money that you've gained to what would they call cross subsidize, which basically me- simply means pay for the construction of co-op housing and. Uh, and low-income family housing on the site, and there's no there's no loss to the taxpayer, and the taxpayer also gets access to 50% of those lands as a as a restored and renewed and generally accessible uh, nature park.
And I, I can imagine if there are any golfers listening right now, they have their backs up saying, why are you attacking the golfers? We need a place to golf in the city. Uh, could the same argument then be made that I, I know the argument being made is this is a big amount of land that is used by a small group of people. But could the same argument not be made then for playing fields and other places where the whole population doesn't use them, uh, only a certain group does? Well, <clears throat> Uh, I wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't touch park space or or playground space or anything like that. I think that's the core of the issue. Uh, this and there, this is not the only way to solve this problem. Scott and I are trying to put out a number of different ways to solve this problem, but in this one instance, there's a logic to taking what is an exclusive area and turning it into a generally accessible area as park space. And then taking the occasion to create great neighborhoods for people, not not just sell it off to the highest price for developers, but to develop it as permanently affordable housing using the South Falls Creek model to do that. Furthermore, <clears throat> there are seven golf courses in the city of Vancouver. All of them are open to day. They're not country clubs. They allow anybody to come in. And the green fees of those uh, those four other private courses are not out of line uh, with uh, what the city courses are charging. Furthermore, there are, there are, there are a dozen uh, courses in Burnaby and Richmond and so forth a little bit further out that are accessible within a half-hour drive. Our region does not have a crisis of golf courses, believe me. What it has is a housing crisis. Uh, do you think, though, it might... Uh, be, I, I'm thinking of when this happened in, I believe it was Surrey, uh, when a golf course, uh, adjacent lands were developed. Uh, the people who had purchased around there were very upset about that, saying, wait a minute, I bought or I live and I rent near this golf course. I did it because this golf course is here. Uh, because you don't often think about something like that being developed down the road. I would imagine if, if something like this even got to the proposal stage, there would be a lot of pushback. There would be a lot of pushback, and I'm not confident that we're actually going to solve the housing crisis because any, anything you suggest that's in scale to the problem will engender this and other kinds of opposition. I get that. Uh, so, so I wonder if we're ever actually going to solve this housing crisis, given that any solution is going to be fairly dramatic. So in terms of sparking a conversation, I feel satisfied that we've done so, but I'm not confident that we're actually going to fix what is a, what I call an existential problem for the city. Nobody can afford to live in the city anymore. Uh, and one other note uh, that you've brought up in the piece uh, is the environmental side of it, because that does seem to come into every con uh, conversation, uh, that golf courses use a lot of fertilizers. They use, uh, in some cases, a lot of pesticides. Yeah, they use both, and they use a lot of uh, they use a lot of water as well to irrigate and keep everything uh, emerald green. So there's a whole there's a whole side of that. There's also the greenhouse gas consequences of the fertilizer use and the vehicles, you know, mowing the lawn to keep it a half an inch high and no more and no less every other day. And so the the estimates out there are that uh, the average golf course uh, produces. Uh, the equivalent greenhouse gas of 123 cars per year. So it's, it's, it's not a benign one. And the use of pesticides and so forth means that it's uh, ecologically not as, not as rich a habitat as it may appear. All right. Well, we will leave it there. And uh, Patrick, I know this is generating a lot of debate and conversation, but thanks for joining us today to talk more about it. I appreciate your time. Thanks for calling, Joe. Bye-bye.